There's the whistle. Go, go, go! Second half, my three subs action from the Center Circle Studios. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. You know, the love of soccer has to start somewhere. And for many people near the Center Circle Studios in the Memphis, Tennessee area, it started back in 1978 in the North American Soccer League. The Memphis Rogues gloriously occupied Liberty Bowl Memorial Stadium. And joining us today is one of the people that helped us to mark the time. With me today is the original color analyst for the Memphis Rogues. We say hello and welcome to Bob Brame. Bob, it's an absolute thrill to have you in the Center Circle studio today. How are you, my friend? It's great to see you, Tim. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm doing well, doing well. It's been a long time since my days with the Rogues. Let's talk about your soccer background going into that in 1978. So, so you get in on the ground floor with this team. How many years of soccer had you called? None. Uh, no, wait a second. None? None. Uh, what I knew about soccer, uh, I could spell it. And uh, But I was, uh, I was at WRAC Radio, and RAC ended up signing up with the Rogues to carry the games. And I was sports director of the radio station at the time. This is an AM legacy type of station, right? Yes. News, news talk. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so they came to me and said, hey, we're going to start carrying the new soccer team broadcast, North American Soccer League, Memphis Rogues. And as part of the deal, uh, we want you to be involved. And after I picked myself up off the ground, I thought, well, I don't know anything about soccer. So the very first soccer game I ever saw in my life, I was the color commentator. Which is a job, by the way, for those of you that don't know, involves really hearkening back on your personal experience to comment on the game. So you were called to hearken on your experience to comment on a game, and you had <laughs> no experience. No experience. And I, I recall I would, I'd have great uh, in, insightful comments like, Man, he really kicked that hard. Or, man, he he really fell down hard. Uh, but we had a three-man broadcast team at the very beginning. Uh, Kevin Card, uh, the late, great Kevin Card, was uh, there was a Tampa connection for the Rogues. And how now? How did that work? Was were the, was this team part of a network of NASL teams or a duopoly or? Did the Tampa Bay folks own Memphis? There was just a huge presence in Tampa. And we had a connection with Tampa as a city because the Liberty Bowl, in its original configuration, about 51,000 seats, was a a replica of the Sombrero Stadium in Tampa. And so uh, Harry Mangurian, Bill Markham were involved. That's really how Kevin got involved because his... Uncle owned the Anheuser-Busch distributorship in the Tampa-St. Pete area. And uh, Kevin was looking for an opportunity, and so he came to Memphis to work in marketing. And Rudy Schiffer, uh, who is still around Memphis, never left. Uh, Big presence in Tunica when the casinos opened down there. Rudy came, and his very first night in Memphis, uh, he stayed in my apartment. And we we uh, I got a I got an early idea of what one of the themes of the Rogues ended up being was we may not win the game but we're going to have a good time, and so Rudy and I broke I broke him in on his first night at the old Fridays in Overton Square, 
<laughs> and then we went back to my apartment, and he crashed on the couch. But uh, there was there was that Tampa Memphis connection, and I in looking back at that, I, I think maybe they just felt like Memphis didn't have a major league team of any kind at the time, and the North American Soccer League, you know, there were only twenty four cities in the league. And Memphis and Tulsa were the two smallest markets. But you had New York, Los Angeles. Oh yeah, yeah. We had Chicago, uh, Dallas, yeah. Houston, Miami, Denver, Philly, uh, right? Philadelphia. Uh, so we were just as Memphis is one of the smaller markets in the NBA today. We were certainly one of the smaller markets in the North American Soccer League. Well, it sounds like you and Rudy had had, yeah. had kind of a pretty good feel of how the team was going to be. How was it in the front office? How was the structure of the team in those early days? I've heard stories about how the NASL in some cities was highly organized. In some areas, it was like the Wild West. I think both apply to Memphis. Uh, Again, it was my first exposure in 1970. I was 24 years old and had not been around a major league team. Uh, It was well-staffed. We had good people, competent people. Uh, But it was the Wild Wild West at the same time. We, uh, a lot of that because of the makeup of the team. A lot, a lot of folks from from Britain and Scotland and Argentina, and these were not choir boys. They were talented players, and they took their job very seriously. Uh, but they took life off the the pitch very seriously too. Work hard, play hard. I guess absolutely. I got to ask you about Malcolm Allison. Malcolm Allison, for, for English soccer fans, particularly up on the blue side of Manchester, Manchester City is a coaching, managing legend. He was hired as the first manager of the Memphis Rogues, but he never got to the first game. Word is, he did not bring in enough players, and then that job fell to... Eddie McCready. You know Eddie. I know Eddie well. have not seen him in some years, but... I think with Malcolm, I met him, but it was about five weeks before the first game. He had a falling out with the ownership group, is all I I would think that that was. Um, and he was, because of the success that he had had in his career, you know, he had his way of doing things. And look, that's just the, it, you know, if you don't see how Jerry Jones. Uh, sees things with the Cowboys, you're probably not going to have a job there. Right. And so I think that's what happened to Malcolm. Eddie was uh, was available, coming off a storied career, legend at Chelsea, you know, one of the teams in the Premier League, uh, which some years later, uh, they were on hard times. I think they fell to the second division. Well, now they're back up you know, near the top in one of the better clubs, but Eddie came in, uh, known to be a really hard-nosed player uh, and coach, uh, had lots of demands of his players, but he was loved by his players because he, he, he truly was a player's coach. Bob Brame joining me today on the podcast. Bob was the original color commentator for the radio broadcasts of the Memphis Rogues from the North American Soccer League. You talked about how you felt that the players took their jobs very seriously. Did you ever get a chance to see the guys work out to practice beforehand? I mean, where where would you have a soccer practice in Memphis in 1978 anyway? At the Liberty Bowl. That's where the team practiced. We played there, and that's and that's where they practiced. 
Liberty Bowl, totally different beast than it was uh, back in the 70s. Now it holds 60,000. They've had a few renovations, but back then, what, 50, 51,000 right. and, and natural grass. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it was a good pitch. Uh, always well-maintained. Uh, the Park Commission at the time is no longer in existence. It's just a division of parks, but uh, always took great pride in keeping uh, the, the turf at the Liberty Bowl in great shape. Uh, much as as apparently is the case now at AutoZone Park and at the Liberty Bowl, Liberty Bowl too. I went to the to the Tiger Ole Miss game this year and uh, not been in the stadium for quite some time and uh, well run, uh, in good shape. Field seems to be great. Not a bad seat in the house just because of it's one level. It's not tiered, not exactly. stair stepped up. Good pitch to it. I would love at some other time though to talk about how not everybody loves the Liberty Bowl, nor how did they love the Liberty Bowl back in the 70s. Well, I know that there's a couple of stories that you can share with us about that that, uh, that were a bit controversial back in the 70s. So you maybe met Malcolm Allison for a brief period of time. He's out. Eddie McCready is in as the manager. And eventually a player. We can get around to that mm-hmm. uh, at some point too. It's hard to believe you have former Chelsea players playing in Memphis, thinking of what Chelsea is now, such a, a powerhouse in its storied history. But this was all leading up to the first ever match, April Fool's Day, nineteen seventy-eight, in Tampa, Florida. This is at the Big Sombrero at Tampa Stadium. Twenty-six thousand two hundred some odd folks show up for this match. So here you are, Bob Brame. You've never done a match. You're never not, seen a match. Never seen a match. You can spell soccer, probably can spell football as well for the English fans. So you are you are bilingual. Yes, I am. Um, so here you are. Talk about what you recall from that particular day. And I know the Rogues did not win that game, but just talk about being there on that day. Did you have any thoughts of, oh, my God, what have I gotten myself into? No, I had a Gomer Pyle reaction. I got down there and, golly, <laughs> this is something else. Uh, I I don't think I'd ever been on a plane before then. And again, I was 24 years old. Uh, Where are you from, Bob? I'm born in Frazier. Born, born and raised in Frazier. Um, St. Joseph Hospital in 1954. And my, my folks uh, lived out right down the street from International Harvester, which was still cooking big time at, at the time. A lot of people I went to high school with, their, their dads worked at International Harvester or Firestone. But I find out I'm going to be on this broadcast and had obviously gotten to know uh, Rudy and pretty quickly got to know Kevin extremely well. And that, they didn't call him Kevin the wild card for nothing. <laughs> you think about the fact that his uncle owned the, the Budweiser distributorship in Tampa, St. Pete, so he was no stranger to the party scene. Nor was anybody else affiliated with a ball club, as far as I could tell. <laughs> so, again, might might not win the game, but we did pretty well in the bar afterward. So you, so you get down to Tampa. How'd the broadcast go? Oh, gosh, I think it went okay. Uh, I was smart enough to let Kevin do the play-by-play, and, and you know, which makes him the dominant guy on the broadcast. And uh, Rudy had, has never, ever been at a loss for words. Rudy had been 
with the uh, uh, several teams up in the Connecticut area. Uh, Connecticut Bicentennials. I mean, so he had ex- he had exposure to knowledge of, which made him really valuable in the beginning, in helping to recruit players. It was not, you know, not just the coach who was involved in it, but but Rudy's a, always been a great public relations guy. Never, he, Rudy has never been afraid to get on a phone and talk to somebody, has he? No, and at least in my personal interactions with him, he's not a shy guy. No, he's not. And in, in addition to doing all of the sports uh, on WREC, uh, there was this little radio station that had been kind of kicked around. It was beautiful music, and then it was automated country. And then in 1977, uh, Rock 103 was born. And once again, they said, hey, you're here in the morning, and you're in the demographic that we're trying to get, so you're now going to be part of the morning show on 103 which allowed me to do a number of other things. And so I was never at a loss for words, and you've known that in the many years that we've known each other. Uh, so between Kevin and Rudy and I, uh, there was no, there, there was no uh, uh, quiet time. You know, we, didn't ha- we didn't have any dead air. In that match, Memphis Rogues lost 2-1. to one. John Faulkner scored the franchise's first ever goal. Now, Adrian Alston scored for Tampa, but probably more memorable, scoring the match-winning goal was a guy named Rodney Marsh. Yep. Legend has it that Rodney scores this goal, and soon thereafter, he ends up injuring one of our guys. Jimmy Husband. Now, the story, according to Rodney, he's told this on his show before, is that the headbutt he gave Jimmy Husband knocked Jimmy's tooth out. So I guess while Rodney got the man of the match, I guess Jimmy got a visit from the Tooth Fairy that night. <laughs> Not surprising because it would be, we well, see it in hockey more often than soccer, but, you know, uh, you know, guys who are not afraid to put their uh, their teeth on the line, uh, you know, their blood on the line, whatever the case may be, but that Rodney has told the story about his uh, – confrontation interaction with with jimmy husband um, my phone would ring and hello bub it's jimmy husband <laughs> very deliberate uh uh way of speaking but uh, about rodney marsh i got down there and spent enough time before the game to find out rodney marsh was the mayor of tampa i mean he was absolutely uh their favorite son from a different country, but great player, great player uh, with Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy was tough. I mean, he was really tough. I wouldn't take him on. Uh, you mentioned John Faulkner scoring that first goal. And John was our top defender. Well, he and Bobby Thompson were our top defenders. Another British guy, right? Yeah. 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 And, I, I, and, and John and Bobby uh, were very, very close because, again, sharing uh, – upbringing and nationality, uh, but both really, really good players. And John would typically uh, be assigned to the top scorer for the other team. Kind of just shadow. Yeah, tall, uh, tall, kind of lanky, uh, but fast. And uh, he could, you know, could cover a lot of ground. And it was one of the things that for the Rogues, we had players on that team 
who, uh, some of whom, uh, and as time went on with different folks who came in, kind of passed their prime, but still really good players. Still a, a little bit of tread on the tires. Yeah. yeah. And um, not afraid of anything. <laughs> not afraid of anything. Because, you know, at that time, Rodney Marsh was one of the top players in the league. Maybe not skill-wise, but reputation-wise. And he did produce. I mean, he certainly did still produce. But I think some of the other players probably resented him a little bit for that. Uh, because we had, if you want to look at the roster through the years, uh, I mean, Tony, I mean, I'd, I'd start a list, but but Tony Field had, had been... Uh, just a top-notch, world-class player, and then right. yeah, and then through the years, uh, with the addition of guys like Paul Cannell and Paul Child, uh, you know, I mean Eddie McCready actually, you know, did take the pitch, you know, for the strike game against Detroit. That was in '79, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, yeah. The Rogues were the. <laughs> The Rose were the only team in the North American Soccer League that legitimately participated in the strike, which was a terrible idea for them to do at the time. Uh, a terrible idea to even entertain the thought of having a strike because what, what the was, league wasn't there yet. What was the issue? Was it, Do you remember if it was pay? Was it travel? Was it per diem? Yeah, all of the above? Maybe all of the above. But I, you know, I'm thinking about this and knowing that you and I are going to be chatting today. Um, now, again, I'm a young guy, very impressionable, and instead of going to Shelby Forest or what is now Shelby Farms or just going to my own high school, uh, I'm in L.A., New York, Chicago, Minneapolis, Miami, Atlanta, and my memory of it was we stayed in nice hotels. Uh, we flew commercial, coach, but... Uh, were well taken care of. The per diem, I don't recall what it was. It was not a lot, but it was enough. And uh, and so I don't think it was so much those conditions, but they were not m- – most of the players were not being paid, you know, a lot of money, uh, enough to get by. Uh, there were some players, and when you get to, to teams like New York where, I mean, come on, when you get – L.A. and Canalia and Beckenbauer. It's like okay, I don't, I don't know what kind of money they were making, uh, but but they weren't, they were not uh, all that handsomely paid, but they were still happy to just be playing soccer. Sure, sure. Bob Brame joining us on the podcast today, and he was the original color commentator for the Memphis Rogues in the 1970s, and and so Bob gets through his first game. He's now a veteran broadcaster, mm-hmm. and they bring it back home the next week for the first ever home game at Liberty Bowl Stadium in front of over 17,000 to face the Philadelphia Fury. Rogues yep. lose that one too, but uh must have been nice to be back home. What was it like to broadcast out of the Liberty Bowl press box? I mean, you have the soccer field down there, but then it seems like the press box is way up high, and soccer moves much faster than football. You don't have the breaks between plays. Did you have a spotter? Were you your own spotter? How did that work? No, we didn't have a spotter. Uh, we didn't have an engineer. You know, we did that ourselves. And, uh, uh, yeah, it, pretty high up. But my my vision was a lot better back then than it is today. I don't think I could, I don't think I could do it now. And I, I don't know how, uh, 
how it works for other broadcasters. Well, I know that in football they do have a spotter and they have an engineer, so they get all the support that they need. But, uh, you know, I remember one game we we were playing in Houston, and I'm by myself. It's April, but in Houston, Texas. Game goes into overtime. Uh, Houston player strips our guy of the ball, goes down, scores, bam, we're done. I didn't linger around thinking back on it. Uh, now, at this time, I'm I'm now by myself, and I'm doing the play-by-play. And you may I think I've told you the story of how how I went from color commentator to play-by-play guy. But, oh, we got another episode here, Mark, just for that. Yeah, Bobby boy, don't worry about that. You got an invite coming <laughs> on that. So you did play-by-play. You did you did everything that match. You had to have been exhausted at that point because there's really no downtime for the play-by-play person because you are constantly just painting that picture. Well, in that particular game, uh, lost in a horrible fashion, and Charlie Cook was already he replaced Eddie McCready as the head coach. And he was not happy about the way we lost the game. A mistake was made. Houston gets the winning goal. We're at the Astrodome, and we're staying at the Astro Village Hotel, which is part of the Astrodome complex. So this match was in the Astrodome? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. What was that like calling a match there? Uh, being in a cavern. You know, I felt like I was in the Grand Canyon. Did you need a telescope? It seems like that press box way <laughs> well, up there. Well, it's the strange thing is sometimes the the larger the venue, the better uh, we had it in terms of sight lines and proximity to the field and all that. But uh, uh, I wrapped up the broadcast, loaded up my equipment, and go to the locker room, and the team has already gone because Charlie didn't wait. He just And he was not thinking about me. I said, well, it's okay. The hotel's just pretty close by. Mm-hmm. It was still a long walk. And this was Houston, and I don't think I've ever been hotter in my life, even though it was in the 80s. Uh, the humidity was about 98%. So are you carrying all the broadcast equipment, and I'm too? carrying all my equipment, and I have to walk to the hotel. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, now, at the end of the walk, that's when I was exhausted. I noticed you talk a lot about Eddie, but never not so much about Charlie. Now I know why. <laughs> he made you walk back to the hotel. Yeah. Never forgave him for that. No. It was just, uh, I guess because Eddie was, he and I were both there from the very beginning. Uh, Charlie probably had some second thoughts about whether he really wanted to take on head coaching responsibilities. He continued to play. Uh, so he was a player coach. Uh, and we got along famously, too. Uh, that, they were all good guys, Tim. Uh, they were, you know, I, I can't think of of anybody uh, from those rogues days who I would say he was a blankety blank. Um, got, got got to be a lot closer to some than others. Um, some of the players who were not either from the United States or or England or Scotland. If there was a little bit of an English uh, language barrier, then you know. You know, some preferred to stay to themselves quite a bit. And then there were others who you, you knew where to find them after the game. If there was a uh, if there was a, a decent lounge or bar in the hotel where you didn't have to go, you know, catch a cab or whatever. Uh, but again, they all good guys, 
hardworking, no slackers, really. And you know, you've, you've been around soccer your whole life. You know, it is, uh, it's not a sport where you can take time off. You, know, you really have to get after it. Did it help you to appreciate or even love the game more seeing how these guys treated it with such respect? Yeah, but it, but also the fact that I've, I'd been given this gift at a, at a young age with no experience, <laughs> you know, no knowledge of the game. And so I had to be a pretty quick study. Uh, there was one game, we were on the road, we were in Atlanta, and a PR guy uh, from Atlanta asked me, uh, and I don't remember the gentleman's name, but it was a pretty well-known, established guy with a long track record in soccer. He said, he's here. You know, he'd be delighted to sit in with you and be your color commentator. And very nervously, I said, okay. <laughs> and so we started the broadcast, and so is this a former or current player that's injured or just a commentator that has a bit of a background? He was a retired, retired player coach. Okay. I just happened to be around. Okay. And I, I wish I could remember his name, but I was not taking notes back then. And before we got started, I apologized to him. I said, look, I'm, I'm new at this. I don't really have that much knowledge of the game. The circumstances dictate that I'm here to be doing this. Uh, so I want to say on the front end, I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> and, Which is a great way to lay a foundation for, for a, yeah, just a good rapport during the match. What are your expectations to survive, basically, is it. So how'd it go? We went into the first commercial break, and he ripped his headphones off and threw them onto the countertop and looked at me and said, I don't want to hear anything else from you. You're doing absolutely fine. Just keep doing what you're doing. I'm enjoying being here. Have at it. And I thought, okay, well, I'm glad I went to the bathroom before I got started because, but that was, that was a great moment. Well, if I may, I think I don't want to hear any more from you, Bob. You've, <laughs> you've done absolutely fine. And let's call it a day, but I would love to extend another invitation to you because I think we've just scratched the surface on this particular era, and it has been amazing to hear some of the stories of the beginnings of the Rogues. We hear names thrown out, but we never hear the stories and what went on in the background. Bob, really appreciate you coming by today, and, and please don't be a stranger. Uh, there's so many other things about Memphis soccer history uh, that we would love to hear about. And, and if you wouldn't mind contributing, uh, the welcome mat, of course, is going to always be open. May the pleasure is all mine, Tim. Thank you for having me. Bob Brame, the original color commentator for the Memphis Rogues back in the North American Soccer League days. Or next on My Three Subs, a soccer odyssey. I love talking soccer, but I also love talking about real estate, too. And, and people ask me about both a lot. And one of the big questions I get in real estate is, how's the housing market? The housing market looks great, and interest rates are near historical lows. And really, it all comes down to when is the time right for you. If you're ready to make your move, give me a call. Tim Van Horn at Cry Like Realtors. 901-756-8900 is my office number. Brody, can I give him my cell number? Oh, I can? Okay. 901-262-5000. That's my cell phone. You can also go to my website, timvanhorn.com. I can help you with your move around the block, around the city, around the state, 
and even around the world, too. I have a network of relocation certified agents just ready to help you. They are dying for your business, and I can put you in touch with those. All it takes is pick up the phone, give me a call. 901-756-8900. That's my office number. You can call me at my cell, 901-262-5000. Or just go online. Check me out at timvanhorn.com. That's timvanhorn.com with Carlisle Realtors. This is my three subs, a soccer odyssey. And we have added time to the podcast. And this week's podcast, VAR, Van Horn Assisted Review, is the brainchild of the chairman, yeah. Brony Scott. And he has a nice medulla oblongata, so <laughs> I, that's not code for anything, by the way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but what are we talking about today? So I, I have a bone to pick with added time. Okay, and recently we've had our fair share of ridiculous amounts of added time. Sevens, nines. Um, I've saw, I've seen a ten uh, there at the, in added time, um, and and that is where I have a problem. Okay, especially when it comes to the halftime added time. Uh, there at the end of the first half, you see four. Uh, we at uh, the last match uh, in Liverpool, we saw an added four time. Right. Uh, I think and that was due to VAR, right? <coughs> Most of it. Maybe is. we need to do a VAR on VAR at some point. Well, too. It, listen, I think they're spending too much time on VAR. Yeah. But that being said, we're getting added time that I don't think necessarily warrants for that time. In fact, I think going into the half, hey, listen, two minutes, you cap it at that, and you sandbag to the end of the match. You know, in Ooh. which case, hmm. listen, if we need it, we need it. If we don't, we don't. That's an interesting take. I, that would change the game a little bit, though, wouldn't it? A little bit, but it wouldn't. Here's how. Here's here's who it would affect. It would affect the players that get subbed off before the end of the match. Yes, Be- because if they were involved in events or delays, and that time added gets capped in the first half, then you've just deprived the starters of an opportunity to use all of the time that they should have had in action, rather than cap and then they get subbed off and they don't have an opportunity to be able to uh, perform in those minutes that they should have had in the first half. I just think that you're prolonging an inevitable half. You know, too many times do you see, you know, uh, goals coming in in the 94th minute, 95th minute, right? That fifth, you know, added time. And to me, at the end of the match, you've got your subs in, so you're looking at at least th- uh, fresh legs from three people. Your three subs, right? And and so you've got a whole new match, essentially added to uh, the what is a, a pretty good match in, in the start. Now, if the if the match is out of hand, okay, you draw you you you, you call it uh, a, as it is. You know, you you take that sandbag time and you say. Whatever, it wasn't worth it anyway. Because you don't want the match getting chippy over yeah, exactly. a result that's not going to change. Exactly. I mean, if you have a 4-0 match, right? Well, you're not coming back for, you know, you're not shooting four goals uh, if they haven't done anything in 90-plus minutes. So I think throwing that sandbag time out is is worth worth, worth its weight in gold. I think I'm where, where I'm with you on the crazy amount of, of added time is that at some point the television networks are not going to like this because well, television yeah. set aside blocks of time for pre, post, and of course the halftime to be within a two-hour window. Sure. And 
if they can't do that and it starts bleeding into other programming, they're going to go, guys, you know. Well, that's what I'm saying with the seven minutes and, and stoppage time at the end of a match that quite honestly doesn't need it. We saw it in the World Cup, in the Women's World Cup, where at the end of the uh, U.S. matches, we would have seven minutes of stoppage time to a match that was done. It was dead in the water. It was five, six, nil. Come on. You know, at that point, you have to use your best judgment as a referee and say, mercy rule, essentially, and and scrap the, the added time there. Added time is a little silly in the first place because the only people that don't know how much time is left are the players on the far side of the field that the coach can't yell to. Exactly. Hey, we got three minutes left because... For those that haven't been to a match in a stadium, the clock stops at 45 or the clock stops at, at 90, 90 right. and you don't get to see how much added time has elapsed. You have to, when I go to a, a local match or to any match, I look at my watch and say, okay, well, there's two minutes elapsed, three minutes elapsed. Right. If you're in the stadium, you don't know you unless don't know. you're looking at a watch. Right. Yeah. You you don't know. And, and yeah, we've been sitting in the stands going, that's got to be four, right? Yeah. It's got to be four. Come on, blow it. But let's whistle anyway. Let's just go ahead and whistle and, and let the referee know that we want him to blow the whistle. Right. Well, I mean, if <laughs> yeah. the match is out of hand, it doesn't make sense. You know what I'm saying? I just th- wish there was a more structured, you know, kind of base to say, listen, we're capping half at two minutes at a time. Whatever what we used basically for VAR, if we had to or whatever, we're going to sandbag that to the end of the match, which caps at seven minutes or something ridiculous. But you're guaranteed a cap max space for how long the match will be. I would maybe even start warning or carding players that take their time getting off on subs because they're padding in an extra three minutes minimum. If everybody makes their three subs, sure, they're at there's three minutes right there. Get them off the field. Get them moving quicker because the new law reads the players can now – and this goes for domestic leagues starting next year. You can go you off can, anywhere. Anywhere on the field and get the ball back and play. Boom, let's let's get back to action. So I agree with you. There's way, way too much added time. Where I kind of maybe differ a little bit is don't cap the first half because then you deprive players that may be subbed off later from being able to maximize their performance. Because yeah. if, you have a, if you have a guy that maybe gets injured in the second half and maybe didn't have an opportunity to get that couple of extra touches in the first half that could have made a difference, then – and I know that's woulda, coulda, but you're well, talking was about was he in the first half? <laughs> yeah, that's a good that's a good point too. Uh, but but the bottom line is, uh, yeah, I'm with you that uh, the added time there's just a little too much too much added. Maybe we need some subtraction time. Yeah, uh, yeah, of yeah. the added time. Subtraction time. No calculus though. No, none of that. And by the way, that was a great point. Your medulla oblongata is a beautiful one. But we got to get out of here. Uh, Brody Scott, thank you so much uh, for producing. And thank you uh, to Tim Mulqueen, the head coach of Memphis 901 FC. Thank you, the listeners and our sponsors as well, particularly Financial Wealth Services here in uh, the Memphis, Tennessee area. We thank you all so much. New sponsor uh, on next podcast. Can't wait to introduce you to them. And until then, I'm Tim Van Horn on My Three Subs. Thanks for listening. We'll see you real soon. There's the whistle. Thank you for listening. Check out more of my three subs podcast, A Soccer Odyssey, at 1019kissfm.com and on the iHeartRadio app.